Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Brandon Howard Thurston, joined from the lovely state of Minnesota by Mr. Christopher Mukigana-Harrington. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Actually, my name, my name is not Brandon or Chris. I'm, I'm just the others, as was noted in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter this week. <laughs> but I'm doing yes. great. How are you? So, we are back. It is October 7th, 2018. Conor McGregor has lost. WWE has won in Australia. Ronda Rousey won the Cruiserweight Championship, according to one newspaper. But yes. uh, it has been a week. Brandon, how was your week? How was your wrestling? Oh, it was fine. I wrestled Ace Romero at Empire State Wrestling last night. Uh, I took a tremendous himself. Yes, I took a tremendous German suplex. I took a lot of chops. I was black hole slammed on the floor. I'm, I'm literally Ouch. icing myself right now. As we were doing our pre-show meeting, I was using my electric massager to massage my, my, my back. But I'm all right. I took some ibuprofen this morning, just like you did. And uh, I, I'm, I'm doing fine. I took a long bike ride this morning as well. So I'm, 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 I'm fine. This is normal. My curling team began on Friday. So uh, we, we curled. We won eight mm. ends. Uh, we won eight to seven, though it was uh, uh, not a close game. Uh, the last end, we gave up one point, so it would have been like eight to six. So is this a new season of curling? Cause, because you were doing curling. You're talking about curling on a, on a fairly regular basis. Were you off-season until now? It felt like that way, yeah. Usually the summertime, the the rink is dead uh, just because they don't bother keeping the ice down. Because mm-hmm. it's basically just a curling rink. It's not used for anything else. So, you know, there's just not a lot of demand in the, the summer. But no, it's a, a mixed uh, mixed team uh, curling league, so that's four people, two women, two men. You got to do every other uh, for gender. You got to. There's a five stone rule, meaning you. you it's got to be the after the six stone onwards is the first time you can eliminate guard stones. So I, I misunderstood the rule, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I did not realize anything. The house is available to be knocked out at any time, mm-hmm. and so I, I was actually avoiding trying to knock out my opponent's stone. And then later, I did knock out a guard stone, but I, I had to. We had to reset. Because, uh, of course, that was an illegal move. This sounds like a complicated game. Um, no, no concussions, though, this week? No concussions. One of my team players did, in fact, wear a helmet. Um, okay. Or it's actually a padded hat. But, uh, no, we are, I was really excited to win. I think this is the first time my team has legitimately won. We've won one or two other games, but it's been when there's, like, three players. Or I think, actually, the game where one of the people got concussion, we, we won that game. But, you know, one of our players had to leave halfway through. So it was kind of nice just to win a straight game where it's four on four. And first time we had curled in probably five months. And I was shocked that uh, it went all right. Well, Congratulations. Yeah. I know. No, big deal. So, you know, if I disappear at any point, it's probably because I've been called up to the big leagues. But, you know, oh, that's going to happen. So that's what you're doing gonna... this morning. That was this morning? That was this morning. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. Okay. No, that was Friday. That oh, was that was Friday. Friday. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, but you, you watched the UFC show last night. You watched, uh, you're, you're really focused on the undercard. I'm I sure. saw the main event. Yeah. Take us through the pre- prelims, Dave. <laughs> 88 minutes later. Um, so tell me what what exactly happened in that main event there. I, I it was kind of weird. People people kept saying Connor was like you know he's an underdog. Other people were saying he was favored. I figured Khabib was going to win, and ultimately I was right. But of course I didn't put that in writing or say that to anyone, so no one's going to believe me that I predicted that ahead of time. And uh, all, all I saw was the main event. And uh, oh, I, I I don't know. I'm not a UFC expert or anything, but uh, I, I I used to be really into pride and stuff. But uh, back in the day. But you know, uh, Khabib 
largely took him down and, and controlled him a lot on the ground. And uh, finally got him with a, with a neck crank or a face crank in the fourth round. Conor McGregor tapped out. Khabib, and, and we better pronounce his last name right. Why don't you try first? <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, I'm trying to see if you even have it written down here. So I can, I don't think I I do. can reference it by trying to sound it out. I don't even see it written down, so I'm going to have to Google it. So why don't you go first? Khabib Nurmagomedov. 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 Oh, see, you got it. You got it. You actually pronounce it better than me. Yeah, I think Russian I can do better than uh, I see. Japanese is what I'm learning here. Okay, no collusion though. The Eagle. Um, yeah, it was a. Uh, it was funny because I didn't know a thing about it. I I am so indifferent to sports. Uh, as I tweeted earlier this week, I had no idea the Supersonics were not even a team anymore. Yeah, I had to look that up as well. I was like, oh, wow, they left in 2008. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is 10 years old news. This is yeah. how little I pay attention to sports. Yeah, we, we, uh, we need NBA Jam and and uh, Techno Super Bowl. That's basically our uh, our, our frame of reference for It really sports. is. And so I, I didn't know a thing. So I didn't even bother looking up the results of this match. I didn't care. I didn't. I, it, it, Dave made such a big deal about how this was going to be the biggest UFC event of all time. And what was funny about it is in one of the um, like radio shows or something, he talked about it for several minutes and he never even said who was fighting. And I had to go look up who was fighting. I think it was actually maybe it was, it was one of his written columns where I had no idea who was actually in this event. He just kept talking about it's going to be so big. And I thought. I think you're a little bit of bubble buddy. If if you're not, if I don't even have a clue who it is that's on this card, and you think it's going to be such a big thing, and I went to a Buffalo Wild Wings last yesterday for lunch. Um, that's one of my my guilty pleasures. And while I was there, I probably heard four or five people talk to each other, say, you know, are you going to watch the fight tonight? Oh, who do you think is going to win? Hmm. So I will say at least at the B B Dubs B Triple Dubs, uh, they they do think that at Buffalo Wild Wings and Wick. That in fact they they were really into it, but they are always into UFC. So I, I I don't know if that's really you know getting outside the bubble. But then today on the news, while I was driving to coffee and to uh, laser dust hunting, um, I did hear someone. I I heard the national news try to talk about uh, the result of the fight and what happened afterwards, and it was hilarious hearing them try to say Khabib's last name. Although uh, you know, like I say, uh, I I do feel like because of all the discussion with the Russian politicians in the news, they were able to knock that out of the park a little bit better than even a lot of sports commentators can. So, talk to me a little bit about what happened after the show. So, so uh, Connor taps out. So immediately uh, after the fight, in, in advance that he wasn't going to shake his hand or whatever after the fight, right? Yeah, that's what I heard. So I mean, immediately after the fight, and even between rounds, they were. Herb Dean, the referee, really had to make an effort to separate them between rounds. But yeah, so he, so Khabib taps him out, and uh, he gets you know right in Connor's face, and he yells at him and everything. And then like he takes his mouthpiece out and he throws it at Connor's corner, and he ends up you know jumping over the the fence, and he goes after one of Connor McGregor's coaches, whose name is Dylan Dennis. I guess is his jujitsu coach. He literally like f- flies over the the fence and does like a double stomp to the outside and just security. And everybody goes crazy. Uh, someone from from Khabib's corner comes over to McGregor and McGregor punches him. They exchange some punches or something like that. Um, just t- total mayhem. Uh, Dana White would not hand Khabib uh, his UFC title belt. Told Khabib in the octagon that he was afraid that people would start throwing things in the octagon and they would have like a near riot situation. Uh, and and apparently the the word is afterwards. Uh, I think Dana White said that they were going to withhold the purse 
for yes. Khabib, yes. Uh, his $2 million purse, but yes. they were going to give Connor his $3 million purse yes. because they were saying that it was, of course, Khabib's fault that this fight happened and he instigated it, whereas Connor. They, they found no wrong with what he had done. Yes. The do- incident where Conor McGregor threw a dolly through a bus window, and that was all several months ago. And I, and I guess Conor McGregor also had some interviews where he was insulting Khabib's religion and his father and things like that. So this was a very, uh, a very personal situation. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned the bus dolly incident. It's been noted many times that was used to sell the fight. They showed that footage as if it was an angle on Raw. Yeah. And, you know, this uh, a, a situation that not only resulted in criminal charges, but resulted in people who were injured and some people claiming that they were, you know, having having anxiety attacks and, and, and problems, you know, situational problems after this as a result of this incident. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what is your point on this? What is your thought? Is 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 this all good for the sport? Well, I guess my takeaway is. We, here we are, we're at WrestleNomics, we've been talking about for months all these TV deals that just happened. So so UFC is currently airing on Fox, and that, that deal is going to expire soon if Fox decided to not renew UFC, let them go to, to ESPN. There's going to be a lot of uh, UFC fights on ESPN Plus OTT service coming up. So Fox decided to let UFC go. They picked up SmackDown. They're going to put SmackDown on Friday nights. And uh, we were all surprised at how good of a deal WWE got and then in, in May, you know, when, when all this news was breaking, one of the articles that was published in The Hollywood Reporter uh, noted a, a former Fox staffer said, we could not sell UFC. And this person went on to say, and wrestling is family friendly. If you have wrestling, you can find cash. I think it's a big win for Fox. It's a great trade-off. And now, of course, I had Bruce Mitchell quote tweeting me, pointing out that Randy Orton did something very non-family friendly recently. But I think this, this uh, I don't know, I, as I sat there and I watched this fight, it just made, made you know, UFC feel like trash TV. And uh, in the context of the build to this fight, the things that were said uh, by Conor McGregor to Khabib, the things that Conor McGregor did uh, within the bus incident. And then you think about who are all the other top stars for UFC. You got John Jones, who uh, can't seem to tell the truth, and he, you know, he does hit and runs, and he fails drug tests, and he gets brought back to fight. And uh, Brock Lesnar, he fails drug tests, but... He gets brought back to fight. And I've, I've heard a lot of talk uh, last night and this morning about, well, oh, wow, this is going to make Khabib a, a huge star now. Now he's not even a, you know, he's not, a, you know, a, a, a few hundred thousand by pay-per-view fighter. Now he's going to be a, a multi-million uh, pay-per-view fighter. And uh, they're, they're going to do this fight again. There'll be a rematch maybe in a couple of years. Yeah, Khabib will probably get suspended for a year or something like that. He'll, he'll probably get stripped of the title. But uh I don't know. I, I wonder if uh, if if you're an advertiser who's you know thinking about doing business with the uh, UFC, if you're thinking about advertising on a UFC broadcast, or you're thinking about setting up some sponsorship deal with UFC. There's a lot of stuff piling up here that would that would uh, make me repulsed for that. Yeah, but let's flip it around. So, um, what's the history of combat sports? Who are the biggest draws? Well, you got to go to Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson had a host of things that went along with his camp and with his behavior and with what he would say and what he would do. And yet he was he sold fights and mm-hmm. people paid money to see those fights. Yeah. Floyd does quite well uh, yeah. for years in between there. There was many guys that did quite well. But no, it's 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 always been a fragmented sport. And there are times when regional draws do incredibly well. And then there's times when it's a dead thing. And HBO just dropped boxing famously, causing Dave to go on a 30 minute rant, making me think Dave does not understand what HBO has become. 
which HBO has become one of the most relevant streaming services for people under the age of 50 by, you know, between John Oliver and Game of Thrones and Insecure and all these other things that it does. It's no longer a station that needs boxing to to kind of remain relevant in this day and age. And so it, it's very funny to me where I do, you know, they, they a couple of months ago, they dropped all their late night programming, you know, all their, their you know, Skinamax type stuff. And that was on, on purpose. Even Cinemax has dropped that actually, um, trying to rebrand itself. And so it's 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 just a different place. But my point would be fights sell pay-per-views and you don't need sponsors to sell pay-per-views. And so for Connor, right. he doesn't necessarily need to be family friendly and if he's trying to sell a combat sports pay-per-view. And so I don't think it's going to hurt them. I do think controversy has always been very good for um, creating interest because you need mavericks you need people that stand outside the crowd a couple of shows ago uh i i told you all about the uh the snooker and the darts mavericks yes. uh from the netflix show i was watching mm-hmm. and you know it you end up falling into to these archetypes that are really really common in sports and what are those archetypes one archetype is the guy who was good once he fades and then he comes back 10 years later and it's kind of the feel-good story of the comeback right that's one archetype they love that story. Tiger Woods is kind of going through that right now. Uh, one archetype is the the young kid, the prodigy, who bursts on the scene and no one's ever seen someone that good. And they, they come on and everyone says, this is going to be the next big star. And that can kind of go in two directions because there can be the early flame out or there can be the real successful run. You have the super straight-laced guy, the guy that you can sell that family image and the one that people like and you point to and you say, this is a great ambassador for the sport. Um, to some degree, you might say maybe like a, a Daniel Cormier or something, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you have the the um, the the person who's not actually that really great of a fighter, but is really flashy and says ridiculous things and wears outlandish jewelry. And, you know, in, in darts, I think it was Bobby George was his name. But, you know, it's it's the idea that, like, it's someone who collects a lot of attention, even if they're not that great. And we see lots of examples of that, of, of the very few times when you'll have a really successful fighter and people will be like, well, they're not that good. And you'll be like, but they sell a lot of fights. And Connor's probably well above that because Connor is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But 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 it's that level, you know. And then the other, you know, then then there's kind of just the, the those are the four of the biggest things that you'll ever see in terms of, of kind of the, uh, uh, the the different archetypes. And then, of course, there's the bad boy. There's the person who talks trash and uh, says outlandish things and can't back it up, but just d- keeps doing it and, you know, uh, pushes the rules and pushes the boundaries. And every time people say this is going to be bad for the sport, this is going to be bad for the sport. And yet they are bigger and bigger because it is not a sport. It's an entertainment. And for entertainment, this is what people like to see. Is this Olympic level MMA? No. If this was Olympic level MMA, this would be a debacle to have this kind of performance after the show. But this is about making money. This is not about finding who is the best in the world at something. Mm-hmm. And so as long as UFC is not about being the Olympics of MMA, but rather being an entertainment thing, this is not going to hurt them as much as it should. And as long as they're making the majority of their money on deals that are either from pay-per-view selling directly to customers, DTC, mm-hmm. or through streaming services where you don't necessarily need to subsidize it with that, Versus television rights, where you do need to find better ad rates, I, I don't think UFC is necessarily going to fall into a a, uh, a spiral. 
Now, there are lots of other questions about what UFC is doing. You know, their, their Madison Square Garden show is looking like it's going to be a wreck. But they continue to be successful at being able to even take someone like Connor, who's in, who's, you know, at the top of it is very Mike Tyson like at the very top of his game and yet so difficult to agree to fight. And at the same time, so difficult to, um, uh, know exactly what they're going to do because they're going to keep getting themselves in more and more trouble. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I see it as the difference between the Olympics as a sport and television as entertainment and television as entertainment this fuels the name of Khabib in the media. People are actually going to know who he is now. And so it's a debacle in the sense that it's frustrating that there's so many people that work hard, that train hard, that perform hard, and they don't do things that are putting innocent people in danger, and they don't do things that are outlandish and that are sometimes criminal. And yet the people that we, we laud and we applaud are oftentimes acting in this outlandish fashion. So, so if I'm like a not quite top UFC level fighter, maybe I'm in the middle or the top middle. I, I see what happened here last night. Could be maybe if if I believe this that he made himself into this big star. Why don't I just do something outlandish and like at- attack my opponent's corner and make myself into a bigger star? Well, I think it depends on what Dana White thinks about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is number one. Number two would be I think it depends on being able to back something up. You know. Uh, you have to have the ability to try and perform at such a level that they're going to care. And the third one is you have to have a reserve, right? It costs money to make money. You have to be willing to pay these fines and, you know, go through arbitration. And think about the way John Jones basically got out of his deal is he was willing to just keep fighting it and keep testing things. And then you look, you listen to what someone like Tom Lawler said about his experience. He's like, I didn't have the money to get this stuff tested. And at one point, the testing lab called me and asked me to pay for something. And I was like, no, that's your job. You guys got to do it. And they kind of said, well, okay, we'll do it this one time. And he's just like, yeah, that was the reality for me. It was, I was going to have to spend thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars getting legal representation and testing everything under the sun. And I didn't have the resources to do that. So I I do feel like you do kind of need a benefactor in order to be a jackass. As as much as we can talk about wrestling being a a carny industry, uh, these UFC with with all this special treatment and to watch things like, you know, watch John Jones get cheered against Daniel Cormier, who's getting booed. And and I guess, you know, people can cheer and boo whoever they want, but it makes me feel like, who are these, who are these fans who are, you know, reacting to this stuff this way? And well, I think they're the same people that like wrestling. Because I think there are people that say, I would like a character, and I want to get behind this character because I relate to it. And there was people who thought Stone Cold Steve Austin was was an idiot, who was, you know, he was obnoxious during his run. You know? Sure. And then, but the majority of the people were there being like, no, I love this. This is awesome. I think the connection of of Steve Austin was that he was, he was, you know, fighting back against authority. I guess like the the, the common narrative is that he's a, he's the guy who's giving the middle finger to his boss and didn't didn't all these people who go to work they wish they could do that and, and drink beers and you know pour them all over their boss and things like that. But there's a lot of people who said that's really crude and yeah. that's not what I want. Yeah, I, and, I think that's you know. A, so a, my point is that there's always people that don't like it and we forget that sometimes that we pretend like they didn't exist. We pretend it was a hundred percent on Steve Austin. I know lots of wrestling fans who told me I didn't really actually like Steve Austin. He wasn't my guy. I was more of a blank guy. Yeah, you know, they'd be like, I was more of a Bret Hart guy, or I was more of a, a you know old timey wrestling guy, or I was more of a cruiserweight, or something else. But 
you know what? The reality is the business improved with his style and with that attitude. And ad rates follow eyeballs. We saw that with UFC. Uh, And that as long as you're able to segment an audience in such a way that you're hitting the right demos, a lot of times the ad people come. So does beer really get upset that they are uh, sponsored on a show where terrible things happen? Or do they care that they were on the show that made it seem like it's the hottest ticket in town? I, I think with Steve Austin, I think it's a different thing when it's pro wrestling and everybody kind of deep down knows it's a work. And I think it's a different thing when John Jones is really you know going on hit and run on people and people are really failing drug tests. Although a lot of WWE wrestlers, especially at the time you're talking about in the Attitude Era, could not pass USADA drug testing. But, yeah, uh, and, and the piece, too, is it matters how the media, how complicit they are in terms of portraying these stories in a way that makes it meaningful to people. You know, ESPN, in some ways, has become so triple-faced about the way it covers wrestling and UFC and whatnot because they they have such a stake in it themselves that you can, you can turn a story into a non-story, you can turn a non-story into a story, and you can choose to ignore things all completely if you don't care to actually investigate the truth. And so it will be very interesting to see how they want to cover something like this. The reality is, it's probably just going to put more eyeballs on UFC. And it's a lot less of them saying, hey, everybody, let's go to D- John Jones' hit and run um, day 15, and let's go look at, at the impact of the victims. That never happens. And so it's been so much in the MMA bubble, just the same way that there's a wrestling bubble. And so I won't say media is is, uh, responsible, but I will say they're oftentimes complicit with the fact that they just want to wink and smile and say, this is entertainment. It's about building up a sports thing. And that's why I say it's not the Olympics of MMA. It's the entertainment sport of MMA in the form of UFC. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're owned by a freaking entertainment company. Yeah, I know. I, I just find this distasteful. And uh, Dave and Brian had had this debate about. Uh, I guess Brian was this is Wrestling Observer Radio had this debate about who's. I don't know if they were framing it as like blame or like sort of who's responsible. Is it the fans who created the demand who made these these two guys stars, McGregor and Khabib, or is it UFC for continuing to promote them and, and book them in these fights? And 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 for example, if they bring Khabib back after a suspension. Are they the ones responsible here? And I, I don't know. I, I think it's probably both. Uh, you know. Well, what what did a lot of good to rehabilitate WWE's image? My mind, one of the pieces was reconciliation with Bret Hart and Bruno Sammartino. Would you agree? For advertisers? No, just in general. Just just like I think it 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 resolved some of the outstanding animosity with WWE, the fact that they were able to resolve with both Bruno and Bret Hart. That helped their image, their public image to the the masses? Public image, the way some fans might feel about them, other things like that, right? Improved it compared to what other point, I guess just any time before they were put in in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think that's a small piece. I think what's helped, if you're talking about like... I, I guess where I'm going with this is I think part of this, too, is that we need elder statesmen of MMA to speak up and create responsibility. Like a lot of times when when people were criticizing Vince McMahon, what would they do? They'd go to Bruno and Bruno would say how much he hated it. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, this is an elder statesman of wrestling who thinks you're doing something terrible. Mm -hmm. And even with Hulk Hogan today, regardless whether he should or shouldn't, he's got a powerful voice. And if, if Hulk Hogan says this is good or this is bad, it means something. Same with The Rock. Same with other, you know, Austin. 
Same with Jim Ross. There's there's a lot of people out there who they, they make a difference when they say something. Mm-hmm. Some much more than others. And I feel like in MMA, part of it is that you have Dana White, who's an elder statesman, but at the same time, he's still the promoter. He has absolutely no moral authority because he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And so what I would love to see is, you know, the Randy Couture's or something of the world stepping up and being able to be these voices saying, look, here's the damage you do to everyone who's involved in this organization every time we act in this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's, I'm, it's certainly not their fault. I'm not blaming people like that. I'm just saying a lot of times I don't feel like it's either the fans or the promoters who are the ones that step up and try to make the difference is I feel it's the elder statesmen and stateswomen, they step up. And as a result, the media pays attention to them. And as a result, the promoters are shamed into responding and the fans are, they, they basically redirect that the, the affinity the fans have for those people towards uh, uh, the anger they have towards this issue. So if um, GSP makes a big stink about it, it might go somewhere. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, and, I think it would be virtuous of them to right speak up. I feel like everyone's afraid. Yeah, I, I think it would be virtuous of them to speak up. I think a larger amount of the responsibility lies in the hands of those who have the power to to make this stuff happen or not happen. That is UFC and their parent company and and then to a lesser extent, the the fans, the customers who actually want this stuff. Yeah, but again, I also think that something like, you know, the Olympics of MMA, the fact that basically UFC is the top tier makes it tough for people to, in some ways, worry about what's next. Because imagine if you, if they were to say, hey, by the way, you can't be at the Olympics if you have a drug failure. You can't be at the Olympics if you do this or you do that. I do feel like that's the sort of thing where there's going to be some people who say, you know what? This is bad for my image because I could never be a national champion in a way that I wanted to be. Because so many of these people, you know, started off at some point in their life as a wrestler or something and they wanted to be a national champion. And so it would be interesting to see if there was more connection sometimes to just kind of an organization that's bigger than an entertainment group like UFC. Mm -hmm. But no, I I agree with you completely that we create demand. We are, we allow business people to skate by and we, we demand transparency only to the point at which it can be plausible deniability. We need to have drug testing. But we'll now allow them to basically say we're not going to announce any drug failures for an extra long period of time because we, we have to let the appeals process completely play out, and I which think, means I think it could have, be a year or a year and a half before they ever actually truly announce that someone has failed. And I think we have and promoters have some responsibility to not make heroes out of people who you know have bad characters. It's it's the, the, the threat you run into. And so WWE has basically said, I think the majority of our money is going to come from TV. TV involves making advertisers and networks happy. We're going to make advertisers and networks happy. UFC has said, I'm going to make the most of my money from streaming and from pay-per-view. So I'm going to make streaming and pay-per-view really happy. And streaming and pay-per-view like to see exciting and dynamic feuds out of Mm -hmm. something that could possibly be very boring. Mm -hmm. And so you need personalities to do that. And this is the way these personalities have chosen to act. And they are getting reinforcement from the company every time they act like this, because the reality is Connor's become the biggest guy in the game. And Khabib is able to act like this and will still be the biggest, you know, will, will still be bigger than he ever was. 
especially even just the fact wrestling Connor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we saw it with Nate Diaz. We saw it with John Jones. We've seen it with a lot of different people. And by the way, you can have a strong personality and not throw dollies through windows and attack people after fights and things like that. You can still have, do great promos and build up fights that are great and people have a lot of interest in. And at least this guy's you know coming out with wearing, wearing weird clothes or whatever. And there's all sorts of build and hype just just without the yeah, criminality. It's the the fundamental thing that so many people are deceived by their own self, and they begin thinking that it. I yeah, it's it's just that that people they get deceived into thinking they are the characters they're playing on television. Yeah, I just want some moral pause, just some some moral thought before we're like, oh my god, how much money could we make here? And and let's forget about whatever effect we're going to have on on the audience or what what, what sort of heroes we're lionizing here. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you. So, it's it's I, as a business person I try to divorce myself sometimes from the morality of it just to say I can understand what the calculations being done behind their mind is. Yeah. But on the flip side, I'm not sure that uh, you know, it's a it's a scorched earth uh methodology and you know, you can say hey, people want freak shows. And great freak shows are good, but you know what? At a certain point, freak shows, uh, the the business can collapse in on itself. And we saw that with Pride. Let's talk about something. Oh, I was going to talk about sumo wrestling. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, This is all related to sumo wrestling. It all goes back to sumo wrestling. Yes. I kind of felt like it was. So someone mentioned to me, uh, um, our good friend William F. uh, mentioned to me that uh, Kanahano had stepped down from sumo uh, from the JSA, the Japan Sumo Association. Is it ta- and Takanahano? Or ta- Takanahana. 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 Uh, okay. He he recently retired, and basically, uh, he was the 65th Yokozuna in sumo history. He has 22 Emperor Cup wins. He's a really, really successful Yokozuna. And basically, he was asked to admit that his accusations against the uh, the JSA cabinet was false and instead he said i'm going to retire not only that they basically have eliminated his entire clan from being part of the jsa now you can be part of one of the other five clans oh i'm going to butcher these names do you want to umi uh nisho on uh tokitsu saki isigamahama and can you click takasago where you, can you click where you, where you have this in the doc <laughs> I, I did oh, a there good job are. with those five. Oh I wow! Oh wow! Uh, those are hard. That's a lot. So, a lot of syllables. Okay. Yeah. So, but uh, basically, his clan was eliminated. So, if you want to study and become a professional sumo wrestler, you have to be part of one of these other groups. So, I mean, his punishment here has been pretty big. That basically they're kicking him out. But at the same time, why did this happen? Well, there was um, a, a really high-ranking sumo guy named uh, Hiroma Fuji. And he injured somebody who is in Takahana's stable, Takanahano's stable, um, during a drinking incident. And Takanahana didn't report the incident, but instead actually, like, basically filed a criminal complaint with the police. And that forced that sumo wrestler, uh, Harama Fuji, to retire in the end. And basically... Takanahana was in trouble for failing to cooperate with the association's own probe, refusing to let their crisis control committee interview the injured wrestler, and basically for refusing to just report the incident to the JSA, but instead going to the police. And 
the, the one newspaper I was reading this from, I think it was the Japan Times, they basically said, the recent series of scandals affecting sports governing bodies has been marked by revelations of the organization being run by a closed circle of top leaders under non-transparent and rigid rules that reject diverse views and opinions. Given its status as a public interest foundation that governs professional competition of the nation's traditional sport, the JSA must be transparent and accountable. His departure should prompt the association to once again review its operation. And basically the idea being that sumo wrestling was trying to find ways to avoid scandal, to sweep it under the rug, to allow their top people to to behave as terribly as they wanted, and to avoid getting the police involved with things when when there was conflict. And so he's being punished because he actually went to the police and reported a, a, a presumably a crime rather than just keeping it all internal. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like he was completely innocent on this. I, I think the one version of this makes it seem like he's very much this crusader. It sounds much more like he was always fighting with them and that they've they've actually been at odds for quite some time. And that, the, you know, the fact that they're eliminating his clan and everything else is kind of basically the e- escalation of a lot of rhetoric between the two. Mm-hmm. But it, what it also says to me is that it is someone who's recognizing that you can't have a sport that necessarily investigates itself. That doesn't work. Is that all that happens is that someone's going to say, are you saying I have to eliminate my top moneymaker? You are saying I have to get rid of the stars. Are you saying I have to punish the people who act egregiously? What if it, it happens to someone who doesn't really matter? Mm-hmm. You know, what if they injure a rookie? What if they injure a non-important person? Is that really reason that we would take them off the card? And it's very Connor-like in my mind, right? Why would I suspend Connor McGregor forever if he injured an irrelevant UFC fighter? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just thought there was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of similarity of like, you have a guy basically saying, hey, I'm trying to step up and stop people. And in the end, what happens is that basically they they give him a, a do or die scenario. And he says, I'd rather die. I'd rather leave the organization. I'd rather leave Sumo. I'd rather let my entire group of, of students go somewhere else, go to other clans. And I'd accept that rather than admit that I was wrong in accusing you of basically... Um, uh, uh, not being legitimate uh, on the way that you're dealing with this, that I, I will instead be relieved as a director of the association for dere- dereliction of duty, and I will end up just basically being forced into retirement. So you see, so, Takanohana is accepting that. He's accepting. In, in, in the Japanese way, he's basically not accepting the demand to apologize and instead saying, I would rather leave the organization. I'm retiring. I'm done. Okay. So he's a, oh, so that that's good, right? Well, I think he, he's standing up for his principles and he's okay. making a big stink about how bad the organization's being run. Okay. In the end, you know, he refused to withdraw his complaint that what he had said was true about them. Okay. So, I mean, in the end, it, it's basically saying, I think you guys are a bunch of rotten apples. And they're saying, we want you to reject saying that. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's saying, I quit. Mm-hmm. I can't be here. Yeah. And And, you know, this would be like a very... You know, I don't I don't know enough about sumo to give a good analogy, but I'm mm-hmm. guessing he's, you know, not exactly a Michael Jordan type, but, you know, he's a very high up mm-hmm. guy. He's he's a very elite sumo wrestler. He was very well respected. He had an incredibly long history. And the fact that there was scandals coming out of some of these these um, camps has always been a problem in sumo wrestling. And the fact that they continue to happen suggests that the organization is more interested in cleaning things up by sweeping it under the rug quickly 
than it actually creating reforms. So, and, and again, it, it relates a lot to pro wrestling too, because we've seen these same sort of culture problems happen in pro wrestling, where there's the whole idea of saying, well, that's part of paying your dues and that's part of, of showing respect for people and that's just part of the, the hierarchy that has to exist. That's all Kogan saying, hey man, you just don't understand the brotherhood of pro wrestling, brother. Could be. So, I thought that was interesting. Um, and so we'll probably be the only podcast out there that's going to bring up this story mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and UFC in the same uh, uh, segment. But I do think there's some relevancy, and I, I do recommend people go out there read some Japan Times story about this. Uh, it kind of kind of struck me. Some sumo, um, the rest of the show, we're going to talk a lot about attendance because we're getting ready for our Q3 attendance stories. Uh, because Q3 for WWE is coming up for the reporting session, and when is it, Brandon? October 25th. When did you predict it would be? October 25th. Oh my gosh, what a savant you must be. Yes, I, I, I've, I've correctly predicted these dates numerous quarters in a row now. I'm, I'm on a hot streak. So we're, we're back on the Thursday schedule. Um, we're still on Thursdays yeah. for WWE here. So if you remember last week, we did some um, ratings numbers. And, and that was what Brandon was alluding to in the beginning of the show here was some of our ratings numbers that were mentioned on the... Um, show and were mentioned on some tweets were then picked up by Dave Meltzer and written about in the Observer. And at first, Dave wrote, I I wrote Dave, I said, and I I was legitimately trying to ask. I wasn't trying to be an ass. (laughs) Maybe maybe it came across as being an ass. You you added them on Twitter. You added that you're talking about you added them on Twitter. You said, hey, hey, Dave, Brian, Semper VV, what do you think of this? Right? Yeah, I was just like, can you tell me why female viewership is falling? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just asking. And Dave's response was, well, they have a really bad third hour number. Mm-hmm. And I responded back, Dave, no. Look, hour one, hour two, hour three, all of these hours are down year over year. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's not that they're having a bad third hour. Yeah. They would be down even if it was just an hour one number. So I, I don't think that's true. And so I pushed back to kind of say that. And so I think that made Dave think more. So I think Dave wanted to give a really simple, quick answer. Mm-hmm. And what he said might have been true a couple quarters ago, and he just assumed it was still true. Mm-hmm. But instead, what we showed, uh, the data that you and I had looked at last week, we paused the show, we opened up Excel, we looked that's at right. it. Uh, a free data, data that anyone could be looking at, data that's available at WrestleNomics.com. Click on the premium show, sign up $5 a month, you get the spreadsheet, you get notes, you get all this data yeah, already it, collected it, for you. It's just what's what's reported on Showbiz Daily. We've, we've just taken the time to collect it and put it in a spreadsheet. Yeah, so we looked at that and we said, wow, female viewership is way down. Isn't it weird that the year of Ronda Rousey, yeah, that the uh, the year of the Evolution pay-per-view, the, women, the, the Stephanie year McMahon's of women's evolution. debuting May Young Classic 2, mm-hmm. female viewership continues to drop year, a month after month after month, all year long. Mm-hmm. And Dave gave a new answer to why he thought this was dropping. Do, did you see his answer on that? No, I don't think so. I think I stopped at, at, at uh, and others. Okay, so he um, Dave Dave's part of Dave's answer was basically that Total Divas, Total Bellas is not doing as well as it did before. Oh, and that there was more rest women kind of coming into wrestling as a result of this, and then especially with the breakup of the Cena Nikki relationship, mm-hmm. that maybe there's less interest in wrestling among the people that were following those storylines, mm-hmm. and that they're just not intrigued by it. I do think it also speaks to, and he, he kind of pulls out, you know, this really is a weird mark for Ronda because it suggests that basically Ronda drew in a lot of women to watch MMA 
and Ronda is probably not drawing in women to watch wrestling. Even that now, first she quarter, might, she might be drawing in men who liked her. Even that first quarter, the female demographic was not up. Correct. No, all quarters, all quarters this year, it's been down. And I'm bringing up so, the first quarter because that's when she first started to appear on WWE programming. Exactly. So, and you know, they're hitting record low ratings numbers. And so, do I think this is inevitable? I think you know when we get to SmackDown next year, WWE is going to pull out all the stops. They're going to do everything they can to have great numbers. And that's fine. They should. And it, it, you know, if if they know where their bread is buttered, that's where they really should concentrate. And I do think Ronda on Fox is worth more than Ronda on USA Network. But at a certain point, maybe Ronda is not the Ronda that they thought they had. You know, people have a half-life. People have a, a value. And sometimes that value is just not the same over time. Mm-hmm. And it matters how you're portrayed. And it matters whether or not that what you're doing seems like it is resonating with the people there. Yeah, it matters it whether or not really you're creating good, stars who are actually connecting with people. Um, I, I think uh, you know maybe some people are finally losing their patience with with Roman Reigns, and uh, I think there's a similar effect happening here with Charlotte, and uh, maybe Becky Lynch is finally turning into something. But uh, you know who, who are who are the stars that are being created? It's it's very few, and it seems like it's it's it has a very narrow vision. But I, I don't know if I have an answer. I think Dave's answer is an interesting one. I think it would bear some research to really be able to say, okay, how did the female viewership numbers go way up based on um, you know the introduction of Total Divas and Total Bellas? And I've tried to look at that, and I haven't really necessarily been able to prove it. And then how would they go down when the show is either on hiatus or when the ratings for the show is dropping or when, when Cena is just completely out of the picture? Um because you could also make the argument that women don't just turn into pro wrestling to see other women wrestle. You know, right. it, it's probably erroneous to just tie it to was Ronda on the show or not. Because you could make a strong argument about do they care about all this other stuff? Why is SmackDown down? Because SmackDown has no relevance on this. It has no relevance on what? SmackDown female viewership is down too, and it has nothing to do yes. with Ronda. Right. She, she doesn't so, appear on that show. Yeah, so there's more to it. That's my point is there's more to it than the Ronda effect. There's more to it than the Roman effect. Charlotte appears on, on SmackDown. Yeah, so maybe, you know. So we'll we'll just have to see over time what, what can we learn from that. But that was kind of interesting, um, just following it from last week. Um, but tell me a little bit about some of the attendance. We're going to get to WWE. We'll do WWE last on these three here. Um, but first, let's talk New Japan, then let's talk ROH, and then let's do Chris's WWE study. Okay, so you, you did a bunch of uh, data collection from results and other notes in the Observer that have attendance numbers for WWE. And uh, we've got years 2016, 17, and 18 here, and you've broken this down into house shows, into non-WrestleMania pay-per-views, into raw TV tapings. Oh, we're doing this now? Oh, what, what I are thought we... you wanted to do New Japan first. Oh, whoops. Okay, we'll do New <laughs> Japan first. So New Japan just did Long Beach, and uh, this was their one, two, three, four, fifth. U.S. show uh, in in this era since they started going to Long Beach and they also done a San Francisco show. So they did their first Long Beach show on July 1st, 2017 with a draw of of about 2,400 sold it out. That's the show with Okada and and Cody on top. And then they did one the next night. This is, of course, the the show that has the IWGP U.S. title tournament on it. So they they sold that show out as well, about 2,300. 
I believe those shows were sold out well in advance, like within minutes of the, of the tickets being put on sale. So that was it. That was July of 2017, and then they followed it up. And, and just, just in retrospect, doesn't it seem so silly to be like, can New Japan sell 2,000 seats in the U.S. if we bring the top tier talent? In retrospect, yes. Especially yeah. now. Now we're sitting here in fall of 2018, and we know know all in sold 10,000 seats. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's just like it, it, today's knowledge. It just feels so different to be like, if I bring Okada and Kenny Omega and Ishii and Naito and Tanahashi and the Bucks, and I have them all wrestle, do you think I can sell 2,000 seats? Mm, you better bring Billy Gunn just in case. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just it, it's it's classic trepidation on from the Japanese marketplace uh, stepping into the U.S. area. And at the same time, it's tough for us to know what's going to be the value of like an NJPW world, but it just really speaks to if you if you build it and you promote it and you make it seem like a big deal, they will come. Yeah, no, no, but I could, I could make an argument though that like the fact that these, these shows and that, that sh- those two shows in 2017 in July 2017 happened, and then in March they went to uh, to Long Beach again. That kind of built up the credibility of, of New Japan a little bit. Like without those shows, does all all in have enough of a background to do what it did in September 2018? Maybe. And also, I think along along the same timeline, um, the being the elite series enhanced the star power of, of the players involved as well. Yeah. So looking up what what date did the on was the on sale ticket for? Uh, I guess it was May for, of, for the July Long Beach shows seventeen. Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah, it looks like it was May that um uh, the the show sold out all its tickets so it was shortly after the long beach show okay so in march 2018 this year uh march 25th they went back to long beach again in a bigger venue 4372 tickets sold sold out this is the main event with the uh, golden lovers kenny omega and coach Ibushi versus the young bucks jay white and adam page and then they went to San Francisco, finally a different city other than Long Beach. They went to the Cow Palace. Did not sell out. About 6,000 tickets and sold. Just kind of reminding people, this was in between when kind of All In was yeah. announced and All In tickets went on sale. Mm-hmm. And then this show happened and then All In was going to happen. Right, exactly. So All In tickets went on sale. Is that what you're, you're looking up there, May? Yeah, yeah. And so in May. So there was always a feeling that perhaps the cow palace show was being undercut a little bit by people being excited about the all in show. And that if people wanted to travel to see the show, it was going to be harder to kind of convince them to go to a show in July and go to a show, uh, shortly thereafter. Right. And then I believe the MSG show tickets were put on sale after all in had sold out. Yeah. That's yeah on right. Sure. So it's like, there's the, I think the fan energy can maintain one thing in its consciousness in this department only one at a time, maybe. Does that make sense? I think, it, I think there's a month difference, too, is that you, you can maintain interest, but it, it's got to be more than a distant... There's got to be a, a significant distance between the time of the events. I think two months is too close. Yeah. So so Cal Palace, 6,300 6, tickets sold for that, short of a sellout. And now on September 30th, they went back to Long Beach. And, 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 and just keep in mind, what was on that Cal Palace show? Kenny Omega versus Cody, uh, Juice Robinson versus Jay White, featuring Josh Burnett running in the ring. Shoot, 
And wh- what were the top Japanese matches for that show? I don't know. I don't have the card. I just have those two matches noted. No, I'm pulling it up as quickly as I can. Uh, G1 Special in, in uh, San Francisco, that one, 7-7. Because mm-hmm. um, we need Americans when you, when you bring New Japan to, to America. Or I guess we can't even make us Canadian. But, uh, or in and, and Jay White is yeah, so, from New Zealand. So your main event was Omega people. Cody. Yes. The match before that was Jay White Juice. Mm-hmm. The match before that was Takahashi Dragon Lee. Um, then there was the, the tag match with Osprey and Okada versus Bushi and Naito. There was the Young Bucks versus Sonata and Evil. There was Goto versus Cobb. There was Kushida and Tanahashi versus Squirrel and Page. There was Yano, Yano and Ishii versus Saber and, and Suzuki. And then there was the five on five. And of course, that was the one where King Haku was in. Yes. But um, yeah, just I, I guess I was just bringing that up to say it was a it was a show that was kind of headlined by, you know, outsiders. And while Juice Robinson and Jay White are very much, you know, products of the New Japan Dojo uh, or New Japan rehabilitation kind of combination of both. Right. Um, I, I would argue that perhaps Okada, Tanahashi, people like that not being in singles matches can also kind of diminish the feeling that you're getting like a top tier show. Yeah, I, th- I think the big lesson here. Is I, th- I think they've featured Kenny Omega properly. He's been a big focus of all five of these shows, uh, but I think they they're underestimating the value of the just regular New Japan products. Like uh, you know, if they they just did a Tanahashi you know, and Okada again in Japan. If they had done Tanahashi Okada on this show, that might have been a, a big deal and might have uh, I think would have drawn a bigger crowd than three thousand here. I think they're. Uh, oh, you're talking about the the final Long Beach show. So on September thirtieth, twenty eighteen, yes. Long Beach, they come back and they only draw three thousand to seven. Yes. And and look at the top three matches of, of this show. You know, Golden Lovers versus Okada and Ishii. Okay. Uh, Juice versus Cody. Bucks versus uh, Tamatanga and Tangaloa. The uh, Grills of Destiny. Yes. Um, yeah, and I would argue that the Omega Obushi versus Okada Ishii match is very New Japan centric. Yes. That 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 I think you're getting an authentic piece. Now yes. there's not a singles though. So that that could be the the difference between the two. Could also be you're just back too soon. You know, that you just brought people to go to San Francisco and now you're going to Long Beach again and this is right after uh, all in and again just people are just not ready for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm all in up. was on let's see here. What was the date of all in? September 1st. I think September 1st. September 1st. Thank yes. you. So this was, yeah, right wedged in between. And, you know, maybe it's just difficult to to keep people motivated. And so increasingly at this point, you're drawing from the local audience. You're basically saying, I have now created a California territory and California fans come and watch me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that the two lessons, and, and, and by the way, like the just looking at these attendances, 2,300, 2,300, 4,300, 6,300, 3,000. Like now, it, it's reached a peak, and now it's it, it went back down. So I, I think the two lessons to learn from this is like go somewhere other than California, and don't underestimate the the value of the authentic New Japan product. You don't need to give you know uh, uh, American people and, and white people to to these uh, these Western fans. They they have grown an enthusiasm and a love for New Japan pro wrestling based on what it is and what they've seen on New Japan World or whatever streaming sites they're pirating the, the shows from. And they don't necessarily need to have, you know, the, these 
gaijins, these foreigners, put up, put up in, in extra prominent places because they're Western fans as well. And you could also wonder how much of it is being driven by Access TV, by Harold May, by other people that are also trying to interpret, read the tea leaves of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't always know if they have a vision of what it means to get into the American marketplace. On the flip side, you know, these numbers, we're going to look at Ring of Honor in a second. Ring of Honor would love to have numbers like this. Ring of Honor would love to have 6,000 people at a show. Yeah, and why don't they? <laughs> um, well, let's finish off with New Japan first. Yeah. So uh, we got King of uh, Pro Wrestling coming up at Sumo Hall uh, very soon. It will be a three-way with Omega versus Abushi versus Cody. Uh, you mentioned both the Voices of Wrestling. Part, of course, WrestleMonix is proud to be part of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Uh, they had some thoughts about the fact it was a three-way. Right, so the big angle coming out of, of this show in Long Beach on September 30th was uh, Omega did his usual mic spot after the show and it made it look like he was about to set up a singles match, title defense against Kota Ibushi, and uh, then Cody came out and they set up a three-way instead. So I think the last time there was a three-way for the IWGP title was Brock Lesnar, Masahiro Chono, and Kazuyuki Fujita, which I think... I think has a reputation of being an awful match, but uh, so can you make well, this? You're also over ignoring as, the Rob Conway three ways with uh, Jax and other people. Was that for the, the IWGP title? title? I don't okay. know. Okay, so so Omega made some comments even in the, the post match speech about how he p- poked his head out during the dark match and he saw a lot of yellow seats. Those are empty seats in the uh, in the pyramid there. So he kind of acknowledged the low attendance for one thing, just as a, as a side note. And then um, he talked about how there's going to be a three-way, and he put it over either in the post-match uh, mic spot or, or in the, the press conference after about how this isn't really the match that everybody wants. But he, I think he anticipated a lot of people going, uh, three-way. And I hate three-ways too, especially New Japan. But that he, it would be the you know the best three-way that, that there's ever been for that IWGP title. And, uh, you know, there's not usually three-ways. It's going to be historic. It's going to be a great match, which it probably will be. You know, it's got Omega and Ibushi in it, and, and Cody will be good too. Um, but it looks like, and, and this, it looks like, you know, it, especially looking at some stuff that was in the Observer this week, um, and and really hinted at strongly by Okada in the post-match press conference that um, it looks like New Japan wanted to do Kenny Omega versus Kota Ibushi in a singles match, and they just did it uh, in Budokan Hall for as part of the G1 Climax, one of the last nights of the, of the G1. And uh, they said they didn't want to do that that one either then, but they did it. And uh, it looks like New Japan probably asked them to do it again because it only makes sense, okay, right? Koto Ibushi beat Kenny Omega. That kind of sets Ibushi up for a title match with, with the champion Omega. But it looks like they, they don't want to do that singles match. The two of them don't want to do that singles match that soon. And this is going to be in Sumo Hall. I think they want to do it in a bigger venue than Sumo Hall, 10,000-seat arena. They want to do it either at Madison Square Garden or at the Tokyo Dome for Wrestle Kingdom. Which isn't going to happen this year because it's going to be Kenny Omega and Hiroshi Tanahashi looks like. Uh, so they they want to make that a really big match. They don't want to just spend that. So it looks like you know either one of them or both of them said that they don't want to do the singles match. They're going to hold it off, and as a as a uh, compromise, they're going to put Cody in there. So it's a three way. So it's not like they're really spending that singles match yet. You you don't believe that this will be a title change where you just don't have Kenny Omega take a loss. No, no, there were there will be very angry New Japan fans if that happens. <laughs> I was wrong on Conway on New Japan Power Struggle 2013. He was in a three-way tag team match 
IWGP Tag Team Title, NWA World Tag Team Title, Irregular Rules, Killer Elite Squad, that's Davey Boy Smith Jr. and Lance Archer, the NWA Champions versus uh, Ten Koji, so uh, Tenzin and, and uh, Kojima, versus Rob Conway and Rob Conway's famous partner. Ooh, uh, Big Daddy Yum Yum. No, Jax oh. Dane. Okay. Mr. Jack Stain, who uh, I don't think a lot of us remember Jack Stain too heavily. Uh, last seen on OVW television. Mm-hmm. Seems to be the main place that he's hanging out these days. Uh, Mr. Jack Stain. So, uh, so it, with Crimson. Actually. Oh, my goodness. Interesting. So, so as you mentioned, the, the Voice of Wrestling flagship had a, had a great conversation about this, which you can least listen to perhaps on the very RSS feed that you're listening to this on. Um, so King of Pro Wrestling is coming up. As we record this, it'll be happening this, early this morning. So we'll find out what the attendance is. Uh, right as the show ends probably or, or just before it ends so the question is does this show sell out at Sumo Hall uh, New Japan does a lot of walk up business I don't know that it's sold out in advance so the last three attendances for King of Pro Wrestling all at Sumo Hall were in 2015 with Okada and AJ Styles 8300 the following year 2016 Okada and Naomichi Marafuji with about 9,700. And the following year, 2017, with Okada and Evil, with 9,200. So I guess, I guess the verdict is, you know, the the, answer, the question that, that needs to be answered is, you know, if they don't uh, do an attendance that's in the 9,000 range, uh, certainly if they had uh, a, a Omega and Ibushi, they would have, right? The feeling is that's such a hot match. Look at how well it did at, at Budokan. It would probably do pretty well a few months later here at Sumo Hall. And they would sell out the sumo hall. Uh, but if they don't sell it out, it's kind of like, well, Omega's politics took business down. Or Cody. I'm sure he was only too happy to be involved in that match. Oh, I'm sure he is. But I'm saying I don't know whether New Japan fans would, you know, if you did Omega Bushi Naito or Ishii or something else, I wonder if that would be different than versus having Cody. Right. Is Cody, how much of a draw is Cody in Japan yeah. and sumo hall? Yeah. So it, it'd just be very interesting. Um, and there was a, a little clip, uh, a little quip, I meant, in The Observer this week. Uh, and I'm just going to read it verbatim, uh, and then we can speak of it. There's a new regime in charge, not just Harold May as the new president, but also others. He's putting key positions. The new people in charge, for the most part, don't have any background in wrestling. So, so there are things like that, some things said, and etiquette that are different. Dave Logic. Different uh, handshakes, maybe. They, 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 they like the, uh, long- the worker handshake, the light worker handshake, as opposed to the firm. They've replaced popular longtime officials that the wrestlers trusted and respected. The questions a lot of wrestlers are asking is why a company on such a major business upswing has gutted the business team in charge during the upswing. Obviously, the idea is to expand the business outside of Japan, but there is concern. Mm. Um, you, can, you can read this a lot of different ways, right? So one side... You read it as if you're in the the Harold May is going to mess it all up camp. You say, what happens whenever someone new comes in? They spend a little bit of time getting into the business, and then they bring in their cronies. And who are their cronies? Their cronies are whoever they worked with at their other businesses, regardless of whether they have experience in the business they're in. You, right? you see this in sports, right? A new head coach, and they, they bring in all their, their coaches. Or even, um, I've noticed this in like, you know, presidential politics just so and so gets elected and they bring in all the all the cabinet members from the past administration and so forth great example because there's a lot of people that they were saying you know they were put in charge of divisions that they had no experience in 
and they did not understand, be it Indian Affairs or Veterans of so- VA or other pl- or um, uh, housing, um, you know, HUD. And they're just saying like that. Those are great examples where people just kind of came in. They didn't know anything about the business and they just assumed, well, I am a political appointee. I can learn this. All I need is is to just be here and I'll figure it out because I'm smart. And, you know, I've seen it in consulting a lot where, you know, you get brought in as a consultant or they bring in their consulting buddies as soon as, you know, six to 12 months after the the new president has been installed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, to a degree, everyone can learn something. Everyone can look at it with a set of fresh eyes. And to a degree, you're disrupting a business that is working. And especially in Japan, which is such a hierarchical society and a society where longevity and um, loyalty is so heavily uh, reinforced yeah. and rewarded that there's a lot of resentment you risk in doing this. Now, I don't think Harold May is an idiot. I think he is is incredibly wise to what it takes to be successful in Japan. And so I don't see him necessarily doing this if he doesn't understand Japanese culture. That said... I do think there's a strong risk that you don't that people can underestimate how individualistic wrestlers are and that someone who does not understand the history of wrestling does not understand why was Noah formed. Mm-hmm. Why why was there an all Japan and a new Japan? Why, you know, why did Onita do all the things that he did? Why did, you know, all these splinter groups in the history of wrestling show up places why why was let's do some flash history if we could new japan and all japan was was born out of the ashes of the you know the uh closing of of jwa baba uh opened up all japan enoki opened up new japan uh And, and partially because they could find the tv networks that were willing to sponsor them that that thought that they were stars and partially because those two stars knew they couldn't work together because they both believe they should be the top person. Mm-hmm. So Baba found NTV, Anoki found Asahi. Yeah, and, and, then, and I'm I'm giving a real simplified version of that because there's a lot of other politics that go along with kind of those changes and the failures and the successes that happen in between. But I think the Noah example is a little bit more relevant, a little bit more recent, which mm-hmm. is you have the death of Giant Baba, mm-hmm. you have Giant Baba's widow, who had always been involved in the business. But had always played the role of bad, bad cop, uh, bad cop, dragon lady, and someone who it's it's difficult. You know, whenever you're in that position, it's difficult to sort um, rumor and innuendo from actual behavior. Yeah, because sometimes someone is going to also be in a place where they just don't care how they're perceived anymore. And so eventually, there was a revolt, right? Where uh, basically they the the core staff both from a leadership standpoint from a vision standpoint and from an operation standpoint they didn't want to work for her anymore and they didn't agree with the decisions that were being made and they saw the business crumbling yeah misawa and, and matsoko baba were not getting along i don't i don't know that I've, I've done some research on this over the years and i don't know that i have a lot of insight on what exactly the issues were i, I obviously you can see from the results of what noah was i think misawa wanted to do some you know, fancier production stuff, and they wanted to change their gear, maybe even, and uh, maybe Matoko Baba wanted them to to stay with the tradition of of all Japan and, and that that conservative tradition. But, and I uh, think there was some cost cutting too. That there was there was concern about you know stuff changes cost money. She was not someone who wanted to spend mm-hmm. money. Yeah. So so Masawa and, and almost everybody except for Kawada, because I guess there was heat between Masawa and Kawada, and all the all the uh, the foreigners 
uh, those people stayed with all Japan, and everybody, all the Japanese and Vader, went to Noah. And, you know, then Noah had to, I mean, uh, all Japan had to completely redefine what was their business going to be involving, you know, do I bring in, was that when Mudo came in? So, so Tenru came over as, as well when that happened. Tenru, yeah. So you had and Tenru. Tenru for years had been kind of bouncing around because when you listen to the Anita stories and whatnot, Tenru is another guy that is kind of bouncing around to different companies at different times. Yeah, uh, I mean, as a, as a story, it's, it's like a full, full circle story because, of course, Tenru left All Japan in 1989 to form WSW with the eyeglasses, man. And uh, so, so this was him, you know. 11 years later coming back and there's this dramatic emotional moment where, you know, they're, I think they're at Corcoran Hall and, and Tenor is introduced to this big ovation. He, he gets in the ring and he shakes Matokobaba's hand and it's a big deal. And uh, so, so Kawada and, and Tenor is sort of headline. I mean, Hanson's on his last wheels and and, uh, and that, that happened for a while. And then Kijimuto left New Japan and he ended up taking over All Japan eventually. And we, I just bring this up to say loyalty is is just to to say blindly that japanese are loyal and they'll never leave is is of course fictitious and i think in wrestling there's egos and there's operations and that there's this this contrast between who's going to be on top and whether the people on top like it and we already are starting to hear this right we heard from tanahashi we've heard from okada We've heard them, you know, whisper things like Tanahashi was pretty vocal in one of those press conferences, basically saying, you know, Omega style is not the style I think is the best style. I do not necessarily think that we're doing the right things. And you can't, it's hard to distinguish between what is a storyline, yeah, yeah. what is a work shoot, what, what is a shoot. What's hype, what's what's being amped up for, for the hype and how much of that does he like wholeheartedly and, believe. And you talk to 50 wrestlers, you're going to get 50 different people who should be the champion. It's probably going to be them or their best friend. Yes. So it's not uncommon to have disgruntled wrestlers. Every wrestling promotion has disgruntled wrestlers. The key is whether or not they feel that they're going to be more successful under the leadership regime that is in place right now, and whether or not there's a opportunity for them in down the line, whether there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, if you talk to the guys in WWE about what is it that they respect and what is it they hate, you know, and then you talk to guys in New Japan, you're going to get a very different list of things. You know, some guys like the money and they hate the travel. Some guys love the the style and they hate the um, they hate the ability to move up the card. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to hear all sorts of different things from different people. So it, it's not to say that I think May is doing a terrible job and that he's even an idiot for switching things up while things are going well. I think you always have to be innovating, and I think he understands Japanese culture. What I question is whether he understands wrestling culture, and I think that's what's dangerous is that historically. The people brought in from wrestling who say, I'm going to apply a business mindset. I'm going to make this successful. They have shot themselves in the foot because they've either been bamboozled by wrestlers that know how to work them. They've been confused by the fact that the public doesn't agree with them. Or they've been victims of either their own self-confidence or the mistakes that are made in terms of the timing where every person, no matter how good they are, is not successful at everything that they do. What what are some other situations in pro wrestling history where leaders were in similar positions to Harold May? And well, uh, you're you're of course you know going way off script here sure. uh, of things that I had researched and been ready to say. Well, uh, the first guy coming to mind, of course, is always going to be Kip Frey yeah. in um, uh, WCW, right? I, I, I would I, uh, Jim Hurd. I think would be a better example. His predecessor, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Jim Hurd is is much, much better example. And so Jim Hurd, uh, and I would always say, you know, if you really enjoy 
learning more about this, go over to Between the Sheets. It's a, it's a terrific Patreon. It's hosted by Chris Zellner and David Bixenspan. And they spent a lot of time not only reading all of the wrestling observers, the pro wrestling torches. Um, there's a third one that whose name, uh, Matt Watch. Steve yep. Bedwin released Matt Watch. And then anything else, uh, oftentimes, you know, even Mark Madden's column, um, newspaper articles, arrest reports, any other third party sources that are now available. And they, they piece together the story of what was happening in various promotions around the world in a given time. Or sometimes they'll focus on a promotional set. And so they've just been doing a series of shows on Jim Hurd. They did a whole series of shows on G, uh, UWF. They did a whole series of shows on Kip Frey. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really recommend listening to those. But what do you learn is that wrestlers are good at working people and business executives are not immune to that. And that a lot of them come in with really good notions in their mind. And they think they're going to be successful and they're not. And there's even wrestlers that come in thinking they understand it all. And if you don't move with the business, you will be burned. And so, you know, whether it's a uh, Bill Watts coming into WCW years later and then not and realizing he doesn't understand what wrestling has become. Yeah. And what are some of the strengths we have in this business? And so that's the, the risk with the Harold May is I think he does understand Japanese business. I don't know if he understands professional wrestling because no one understands professional wrestling. Anyone who tells you that they do is a fool. And there's going to be successful people like a George Berrios coming in completely from left field and being real successful in the things that he's doing specifically in WWE that are helping reshape the business to be very friendly to investors, to analysts, and to make them into a streaming I don't want to call him a powerhouse, but a streaming player. I think he's done. Barrios has done a lot to make that business very stable and predictable, more so than it was before. Yeah, and and I think there's been lots of people who have come into businesses like that. But that said, I don't know anything about these people. It's just to say that the wrestlers are are discontented, and the problem with pro wrestling is that when you have discontented wrestlers, they can blow up your business because at the end of the day, that is your product on the screen. And maybe a creative genius always feels that they can reinvent. But you know what? May was not hired to be a creative genius. Mm-hmm. May was hired to be a steady hand and someone who understood the ability to expand into a new marketplace. And, you know, what you and I just said is that there's probably some mistakes that they've made or some miscalculations or some under evaluations that they've done about what it means to expand in the United States. So maybe change is good because maybe they do need more people to do that. On the flip side, you need to do it in such a way that the wrestlers aren't revolting against you because when you lose them, you lose your entire business to create a product. Yeah. Now, now let me ask the opposite question. So Jim Hurd is a good example of somebody who didn't, who came from, I know he did like wrestling at the chase or whatever and then pizza hut, but he was a very, you know, a, a non-wrestling person and uh, he didn't adapt to this. Well, who's, who's an example of somebody who was, who is in a position of a Jim Hurd? Or hailed May and did do a good job. Is, is, oh, maybe is the Sinclair organization. Sinclair. Um, you know, they they've taken Ring of Honor and made it into a a, a possibly profitable revenue stream. Um, I don't know if they're utilizing all their opportunities, but yeah. in some cases, maybe Sinclair. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd, I'd bet the house on that one, but that's just the first one that came to mind. Um, there have been people who have come through wrestling for sure that have been successful in WWE or other places that, you know, just maybe had more of a steady hand mentality. Um, 
Can you think of someone maybe maybe taking the pressure off me? I, I would almost moment? like maybe Vince McMahon, but I mean obviously Vince McMahon, his father was a was a wrestling person, although he didn't meet his father until he was like twelve or something. But uh, I think anyone who was in the live events promotional business, calling them a stretch to be in the pro wrestling business is a little hard. Yeah. You could maybe argue that the fact that Vince McMahon understood television and the future of media much faster than everyone else, that's important. Yeah. Because he he found a different way of, of how he was gonna revolutionize how we'd get to the media. Right. I, I imagine if I asked a Carl Stern or someone this question, they would have a lot of really good examples for us because I'm sure there's a lot of interesting promoters over the years who didn't come from a pro wrestling background or a, a business background. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or I shouldn't say from a business background, from a live events background or entertainment background. Because, you know, it's so, you know, when we think of all these promoters, so often they ended up being a boxing promoter, wrestling promoter, you know, live events. He, Vince McMahon tried to promote an Evil Knievel jump. You know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I want to say that this stuff becomes more difficult as we get closer to the present. Like, I think it was easier to be a, a generic business person and, and promote wrestling well, you know, in the middle of the 20th century or something like that. Because it wasn't as complicated. It was still still a very carny business. But <sighs> I think it's always a, a dependent of the revenue streams. So yeah. what was another thing WWE did well? They were great at merchandising. Yeah. Now, if you listen to WWE today, M- Michelle Wilson tells you that they were terrible at it. I don't agree. <laughs> but, um, you know, they were really good at merchandising in a way that a lot of other companies weren't. You know, they figured it out at the cusp much faster than a lot of other companies figured out that you could sell T-shirts. You could sell albums. You could sell cartoons. You could sell ice cream bars. They, were, they, they, they did it at a rate well above any wrestling promotion that had ever done it at that point. In the yeah, and, and, and at least on in America... Yeah. And, you know, maybe in Mexico or maybe in, 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 in uh, Japan, it was different. Mm. But, you know, I think that just says something about the fact that they got it. And that's a key example of you, 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 when your revenue streams diversify, you have more opportunity to make more money. Yeah. And so that's the key part of the business aspect is I don't think there's a lot of people who are going to be in charge of live event promotion who don't know anything about live event promotion. I think what's interesting is you have George Berrios. He was a guy who worked at HBO. He understood streaming a little bit. He understood media a little bit, the idea of, of tiered content. So I do think that there's that aspect of it where, you know, a lot of times you, you boil down into these people's backgrounds and there's something that connects them to what they were good at. What's really tough is to find that diamond in the rough, someone who understands how to book pro wrestling, who never did anything more than just watch it. Yeah, and who are the promoters who I would say, like, overachieved based on the opportunity in front of them and the resources they had available to them and only like super inside wrestling people come to mind like Paul Heyman with ECW Jim Cornette with Smoky Mountain um, Onita yeah yeah I think I think Jim Cornette's a good example yeah Onita, um, Onita I, in I, Japan um, I, I think there was some interesting Japanese feds uh, over the years you know that have kind of sprung up uh, definitely uh, UWF yeah. Um, you know, being able to sell out as much as they did without television. Akira Maeda. Yeah. But so, I mean, there's that sort of as- aspect of it, which is interesting. Takata but ultimately, you know, for a little you, while. you can look at what, what brings people down. And it's things like scandals. It's things like um, lack of lack of uh, creativity, the complacency at the top. It's about finding financing when the business changes. It's about over-investing in dumb things. You know, betting the betting the farm on the wrong thing. It's about lack of talent creation and renewal. 
And so those are all going to be things that you just want to say, what are you doing about that? And I, I can't answer that. So this is too vague for me to be able to really run down Harold May and say he's dumb. Because to me, I do think they need a, a new and deeper U.S.-based strategy. I will also argue that right now they're, they're in this weird relationship with Ring of Honor, which we're going to talk about. What has Ring of Honor been doing? Actually, finish off our New Japan uh, overall attendance update, and then we're going to talk Ring of Honor. So I, I do think there's this weird pull, give and take with Ring of Honor, where Ring of Honor is kind of playing off of New Japan's success, but being a U.S. syndicate uh, or, or surrogate. Right. So just real quick to go over uh, New Japan attendance, because Q3 just ended, and we're going to go through WWE Q3 attendance as well. But uh, the... Average attendance for Q3 in 2018 was 3,672, and that's so that of course that that quarter includes the G1 Climax, right, which is always their biggest tour of the year, and and that number is well up from the Q3 of last year, which was about 3,100, and and they've been going up. Uh, well, let's see, in 2006 Q3 it was 2,700, 2015 Q3 uh, about 2,800. So that's that's about a thousand up from where they were in 2016 and 17. Again, 2018 Q3, three thousand six hundred and seventy-two, and and that plays a role too in the number of shows you're going to run. Because that's so an if you average. remember a show from a long time ago where we talked about how many more shows New Japan has started running. They run one third more shows than they did three years ago, or five years ago. Yeah, and th- and that's and then the other half is venue choice. Kirk and Hall, you can fill it, but then you filled it and you can't really add any more. Yeah, it's about so when you start seats. going to, you know, what is it? Um, uh, Budokan? Not Budokan, but uh, Sumo Hall? So the G1, instead of three nights at the Sumo Hall, which is about a, a 10,000 seat venue, which is what they've done for the last several years for G1 Climax, they went and did three nights at Budokan Hall, which their biggest attendance, I believe, for Budokan Hall was uh, 12,000. So to get an idea of what the maximum capacity is for them. So it was bigger, bigger total attendance, I believe, over over those three nights, and in Q three uh, overall as a total, the attendance was uh, significantly up from past Q threes. So ab- about one hundred thirty thousand tickets sold in Q three, up from one hundred nine thousand sold in two thousand seventeen Q three. But the answer here is Q one was up twenty four hundred versus twenty eight hundred. We're higher. Q two was up. 1900 a year ago, 2000, 2100 this year. Q3, 3100 last year, 3700 this year. We're up, up, up. So when people say, is the business on an upswing for New Japan? I would say, yeah, because they're not only running lots and lots of shows, they're somewhat successfully moving into another marketplace, which is important to kind of remind people that while 2000 sounds kind of lame, Mm -hmm. that's actually about the average. I think 2400 is what I calculated was the non- um, non Tokyo Dome average for New Japan Japan domestic shows. Yeah, so they're running more shows, but their averages are up as well. Yeah, so they're they're doing the right things, and so I do think they're on a business upswing right now. And um, I agree that it's always dangerous when you bring in more people. If you're going to bring in more people, I'd rather you bring in seasoned vets or people that are going to pacify the wrestlers in a way that's going to make them understand what you're doing. And when you have them expending energy questioning what you're doing, that's going to hurt you in the long run. What's happening in ROH? So according to our friend Lavi, Lavi Margolin, he put together a, uh, he's got a tweet at least, showing us Q3 attendance for Ring of Honor. Total attendance in Q3 is uh, 6,800. That's a 
a total. That's yeah. not just one yeah, event. Yeah, total. Yeah, that that's over. That's over eight shows, right? It's over eight events. Uh, an average of eight hundred and fifty on that. So that is uh, slightly up from six thousand three hundred in two thousand seventeen. Over seven events, but in two thousand sixteen they did eight thousand fifty in over nine events, and twelve thousand. Uh, 375 in 2015 over 13 events but uh the average so you're looking at averages of 850 900 900 950 so we're basically saying that we're plateauing right we're somewhere between 850 and 950 yeah and yeah you could make a big deal about being up or down but i would all say if you're within 100 if you're within 50 people off your average from the year before you're you're flat you're plateauing you're not growing this is all based on uh, observer reports as well yeah. So we're dealing but with all Ring of Honor members. is is much smaller than New Japan. You know, there's no argument about between New, Ring of Honor and New Japan who is is much bigger in terms of the ability to draw in the United States right now, at least. Yeah. Um, I went ahead and did a whole bunch of stuff on WWE Q3 attendance, and if you want to see this, sign up at the Patreon, pe.wrestlenomics.com. Uh, Click on the premium link. You'll go over to the Patreon site. Five dollars a month, you get access to the spreadsheet. Uh, what I've done is I went all the way back to 2016, Q1. I grabbed all the results of all the shows. I consolidated all the data I could find from Cage Match. Uh, because if you look on Cage Match, you're going to see an entry for main event, another entry for superstars, one for SmackDown, one for Tribute for the Troops. And a lot of times it will be, you know, that was one show or two shows. So I combine all that stuff. Um, Cage Match is still incomplete. I'll tell you that. After cross-referencing all this data, I still keep finding uh, SmackDown shows that are missing, especially SmackDown house shows on, like, Monday nights. Um, and then I cross-reference it all with Observer data. Um, what I mean by that is I went through the results section of the Observer data. Then I went through the Raw and SmackDown notes section, where then he would sometimes throw in an attendance. I went through the pay-per-views individually. I went through the takeovers individually. I went through all of the actuals where later Dave will say, here's some actual numbers. And I think he gets those from Polestar because they're usually a, a total number of, of people plus the dollar value of the seats. Um, and I also went through the section where Dave will write, oh, well, the Raw Chore opened on June 8th in Hobbs, New Mexico. And they drew this many people. And so you have to also go through that section because occasionally he'll skip a result, but then he'll put it in that other section. So I did all of that and cross-referenced all these events. And so actually, let's see here. Um, I'm going to open up my spreadsheet here in front of me, and I'm just going to give you an idea. Oh, it didn't like that at all. That could be a problem. <laughs> I was trying to see uh, if I can, maybe I can do it this way look to see how many events I actually ended up wow, uh, ended up uh, finding attendances for in the end okay. so in the end excluding NXT I had a total number of unique events of 878 unique events that I found attendances for so that's out of a total number here that I have unknown written for as well, where there's still an unknown 81 events. So I would say this is pretty darn complete, but again, these are observer numbers for what is the attendance. So almost all these numbers are going to be round unless I found an actual number later on. So this is about what the percentage other complete? Say that again? So this is about what percentage complete? Um... Probably 90 is 91 and a half percent. So I, I consider this pretty darn 
complete. Yeah. Now, this is based on the numbers that Dave's reporting. And we know that when we go and we actually look in the um, final numbers for a quarter, they don't ever tie out exactly the same. And like I said, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, if it's missing SmackDown house shows, those are going to be really low numbers, so that's going to drag it down. Number two, the difference between actuals and the original estimates are often three to five hundred dollars, three to five hundred people off. So Dave will say, "Oh, they drew four thousand. And then when he gets the actuals, he'll come back and say they drew forty five hundred, or he might say they drew thirty seven hundred. So it's oftentimes ten uh, percent difference, plus or minus. So. That's not great because that's more than the the amount of variability you'd want to see. But over a large number of events and the same places, you usually see, start seeing trends and you can at least read something into that. Um, and you could be right. We could be wrong. But I think it's interesting to try to look at the data. So what, what I have here is, you know, what was the house shows? What was the non-WrestleMania pay-per-view attendance? When I say non-WrestleMania pay-per-view, I'm also excluding Greatest Royal Rumble. Um, just because that's another giant stadium show that's going to really skew the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the Raw TV number that we think? What was the SmackDown TV number that we think? Um, and again, this is another case where you get a little biased because Dave almost always has a Raw TV number, but he doesn't always have a SmackDown TV number. That's the one that oftentimes I see is missing. Yeah. And then how many shows are we looking at here? You know, this last quarter, I had 56 house shows, three non-WrestleMania pay-per-views, excluding... Um, you know, anything else really big, uh, 13 raw TV tapings, 13 SmackDown TV tapings. Uh, and what, what do I see? Well, I see, first of all, that house shows as a whole are down for the whole year. So 4,500 year ago, Q1, now we're down to 4,300, 5,200. Now we're down to 4,700 for Q2. And this most recent quarter, 4,200 versus 3,900 for house shows. So that feels to me like we're down for house shows. And that's not great news because I do think house shows are part of the lifeblood of WWE. That said, WWE has been running more and more and more house shows every all the time. And you do run the risk that you're going to have to dilute your base a little bit the more you want to keep those guys on the tour. What was interesting is I do think we're actually down for house shows for the quarter. I think we had like 66 last quarter and maybe only 56 this quarter. So that that's intriguing to me that we're actually seeing a drop in attendance and a drop in the number of house shows. Yeah. And that's a little disturbing. And what, what I found when I dug in deeper was I think this is an NA versus international split. Because when I look at Q2, for instance, North America was 4,000 for Q2 of 2017, and we're down to 3,400 for North America for Q2 of 2018. But for Q3, it's 3,700 and 3,700. I don't know if North American house shows have actually dropped as a whole. I do think international has dropped. Q3 of 2017 was 7,000, 7,100 people a show. Now we're down to 6,100 people a show. That's a 1,000 person drop. However, there's only seven international events last year and four this time. So it, it gets a little fuzzy, right? Because I'm both dropping a lot on the international basis, but I don't run that many international shows, but I lose a thousand people on each one of those. So there, there's a little bit of a mix effect in that. Um, so what's good is I would say if you're keeping your North American shows flat, 
you're in a good place because you're making so much money on TV. Just don't blow your North American marketplace. You can control where you go in international. And sometimes you're going to Latin America. Sometimes you're going to uh, India. Sometimes you're going to Asia. Sometimes you're going to Australia. You know, you, you can change up where you're going to try to mess with that international number. And maybe you're not playing arenas that are comparable. Um, what's happening on the TV side? On the TV side, I saw that raw audiences actually look like they might be up this year. 9,700 versus 9,600, 9,500 versus 9,100, 8,600 versus 8,600 for Q1, Q2, Q3, respectively. So I think we're actually okay on Raw. What we see a little bit of a dip on is uh, SmackDown. SmackDown was up for Q1, 7,200 versus 6,600, was down for Q2, 6,600 versus 7,000 the year before. And then this year, they're down a little bit, 6,100 versus 6,300. So, you know, maybe a 3% drop on, on SmackDown TV, but this was coming on a quarter where Q3 of the year before had probably gone up by 15%. So SmackDown has oscillated a little bit. Whereas Raw has probably seen growth all year long. So I, I don't, this kind of flies in the argument of, hey, female viewership is down, Raw must be doing a terrible job, because Raw attendance actually looks like it might be up a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, Pay-per-view attendance? Pay-per-view is another time when you're getting into arenas where it might be more appropriate to look at pay-per-views as a percentage of the, the capacity of the arena more than the actual arena itself, right? Because if you have an, a capacity arena of 10,000 and you have another one that's 18,000, I probably care more about what percentage of the arena did you fill than rather than was it just the absolute number of people. Mm -hmm. In addition, we're seeing more and more of these mega events where what I'm doing here is I'm counting the pay-per-view, but I'm not counting the NXT special the night before because that goes in the NXT number. Yeah, this is so only main you, roster stuff. Yeah, so there, there's times where I think it's mixed. Um, but overall, what are we seeing? We're seeing pay-per-views are down a little bit. Um, you know, pay-per-view for Q1 was down from 20,000 to 12,000. There's a big asterisk on that. Do you know what that asterisk is, Brandon? The Royal Rumble in 2017 in San Antonio at the Alamo Dome. Yeah, it was at the Alamo Dome. And I think it was like 40,000 people we gave them credit for. Yeah. There. Yeah. So when you have a 40,000 person show, that's going to play a big role difference. So maybe I can quickly do my math here. I'm going to pull up. Uh, pay-per-view. I'm going to pull up quarter one. We're going to give them a 50,000 uh, international house show this, in, a, in a Q4 of this year. Exactly. So, you know, what do you get when you look at the actual individual events? You see that in 2017, pull up, put on my unique filter, 2017 for uh, this year, we did 14,700 fans for Philadelphia for Royal Rumble, which is a very good number. For um, for the which event was this um, elimination chamber? We did eleven thousand in Vegas, and in in Fast Lane we did thirteen thousand. I'm sorry, twelve thousand in Columbus. The year before we did eleven thousand in Phoenix, and we did eleven thousand in Milwaukee. So overall, year to year, when you throw out that Alamo Dome number, we're actually up on pay per view. So I don't even think that Q one numbers alarming. Q2, it shows that we're up 12,000 versus 10,000. Q3, we're, we're down 13,000 versus 12,000. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't include WrestleMania. Um, doesn't include the NXT TakeOver show. Uh, though I'm sure WWE would love to put those NXT numbers in there sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, I don't know if I come out with a conclusion that, that pay-per-view is a really concern. So what I see here is that pay-per-view, TV, 
and SmackDown have found new normals. I wouldn't say that I'm not concerned about the fact that Raw can draw 8,600 people for a show and SmackDown can only draw 6,100 people. I do find that that might be evidence in my mind that it's really hard to argue that Roman Reigns and AJ Styles are in the same echelon of drawing. I do feel like there's a difference of perception when you're on the Raw brand versus the SmackDown brand. Mm-hmm. Um, the pay-per-view numbers, they're steady. You know, 11,000, 12,000, 13,000, that's pretty good. The house show numbers, that's where I see some concern. Because overall, international is eroding. North America is, is doing okay, but not great. And is, is beginning to continue to drop. So Q3 is probably, you know, down 1% year over year. It's nothing. Compared to Q2, it was down maybe 5%. And Q3, Q1 was maybe down 3%. But it's still negative. I'm not growing. But honestly, I don't need house shows all that much anymore in my new model. House shows are a way of keeping the guys busy. House shows are a way of keeping them off trouble. But at the same time, if you reimagine a reality where you don't worry so much about keeping guys on the road 52 weeks a year, and in fact you care more about keeping guys healthy, maybe keeping guys in a good state of mind, there might be some wins here. If they ever decide to truly cut back on on, uh, house shows, which is still a TBA. Yeah. So that was what I'm finding on, on WWE attendance. So I actually think our WWE attendance number might be decent for Q3. I did not go into this exercise thinking that. I thought it would actually stink. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. Pleasantly pleased. Plethora of pancakes. A lot of things, I can say. Yeah. Uh, you've been listening to Russell Momics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukiana Harrington. On our premium show, we have a lot of cool stuff. We're going to talk about the Australia show. We're going to talk about bad stock advice. We're going to talk about WXW. We're going to talk about uh, progress. We're talking about Neville. We're going to talk about Mookie's legal update, including the latest from Kairos, Constantine. There's a picture of a revolver on his blog. Yeah, he's, he's talking about the big gun, Jerry McDivitt. Find out what we mean by that. Go to russellnomics.com, $5 a month. If uh, anyone wants to email us, I'm at Bookiegana. Brandon's at, at Brandon Thurston. You can also find us at russellnomics at gmail.com or the at russellnomics on Twitter and Instagram. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.